Amen. Well, welcome again to church. It's great having you here. Those of you who call Bible Center Church your home, those of you who are our guests, we love having you here. And we also want to say a welcome to those joining us online around the city, maybe around the state. And otherwise, we're so glad to have you tuning in. Next time you're in Charleston, we'd love to have you uh, visit with us as well. Let me invite you to take your Bible to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And while you're turning, I want to draw your attention to our study guides. We're in the middle of our 1 Timothy series on becoming a healthy church, blueprints of a healthy church. How can we grow to be even more healthy? You're going to want to get the study guide. And the study guides are free. Uh, They're free to you. I think last week and maybe this week there's a little box if you want to drop a donation in to help cover the costs. But we want you to have those. We have hundreds of them. Be sure to pick up your study guide. It'll help you walk through these 11 weeks at home uh, just like we're walking through verse by verse through the book of 1 Timothy here at church. Before we dive into our text, I want to echo what Michelle said about the levy service. Next Sunday again, we'll be at the levy. I hope you'll be thinking of a family member or a friend or a co-worker, somebody you can invite, bring them with you, pay for their lunch, just enjoy the day with them. Uh, Between now and then, be sure to invite somebody. So this is an occasion for us to present the gospel in a very, very clear way, especially if there's somebody who's unchurched or you're not sure if they know Jesus. We are going to make sure we roll out the red carpet for them and give them and you uh, a beautiful morning celebrating the gospel of Jesus Christ. So be sure to bring them to the levee next Sunday. And another occasion for those of us who call Bible Center Church our home, we're not going to say a lot about it next week, uh, but we're actually going to have offering boxes at the back. It's a way for us to contribute to the all-in challenge. We've only done this one other time, I believe, since I've been here, and that is we're dedicating an entire Sunday, an entire Sunday's offering for one project. And everything, unless it's marked otherwise, is going to go to the all-in challenge. As you know, you've heard, we sold nine acres of our property. The sale of that property has allowed us to cover our mortgage for almost a year. Uh, But in April, that will be up. And so since that is completely covered for a year, every dollar that we give between now and April, dollar for dollar, will go towards the principle of our debt. And you guys have absolutely killed it over the last 10 years. Uh, so we're, I think we're like 15 million down, already paid, and we've got 11 more to go. Who knows what God can do at the levy service? I'm excited for what the Lord will do through you as we pray and as we give. Let's be in prayer for the levy service. Stand with me out of respect for the Bible, and we'll go ahead and jump into 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, And for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want to begin today by asking you what your favorite food combination might be. What is your favorite food combination? Maybe it's biscuits and gravy. 
Maybe it's peanut butter and jelly. Maybe it's chocolate and peanut butter. Maybe it's brownies and milk. Maybe it's Oreos and milk. Maybe it's eggs and bacon or green eggs and ham. Whatever your combination is, I'd like you to take a second and just think about that and think about why you enjoy these two foods together. Recently at an elder retreat, I got to enjoy some great uh, biscuits and gravy. So I think that's still been on my mind for the last seven or eight days. Uh, but there's something about putting certain foods together that make both taste even better. Some things in life were meant to go together. They, they complement one another. Here in this passage we just read, the Apostle Paul takes two virtues, two characteristics, two attributes of God, and, and he shows how they relate to one another. Those are, that is, the holiness of God and the happiness of God. God is both holy and happy. Now, if I were to ask you, you don't have to answer out loud, which do you think God is more of? Again, keep this in your mind. Do you think God is more holy or do you think God is more happy? Prior to this week studying for this message, I probably just off the cuff would have said, well, of course, God is more holy. Everybody knows that. But as we're going to see in the next few minutes, I'm going to make the case that God is infinitely holy and that he is infinitely happy. And it's really important that we not put one above the other. Think with me for a minute. What would happen if we talk about God being holy more than we talk about him being happy? Well, eventually we would become curmudgeons, right? If we believe God is more holy than he is happy, we'll be curmudgeons. But what would happen if we emphasize the happiness of God more than the holiness of God? Well, I would argue we would eventually lose both because without the holiness of God, there is no happiness of God. Now, Jesus used word pictures when he taught. He talked about barns and rivers and trees. And so I'm going to give you a word picture to help you memorize the main point of this message. And it's simply this, holiness and happiness go together like biscuits and gravy. You can't have one without the other. Holiness and happiness go together like biscuits and gravy. You really can't have one without the other. In your bulletin is your outline. If you're taking notes, you are free to change biscuits and gravy to whatever you want to change it to, right? If Oreos and milk are more your cup of tea, feel free to do that. Girl Scout cookies and whatever it is. I heard some really, really gross examples this week on Facebook, like pickles and cheese. If pickles and cheese are your thing, you can draw, write that right in the blanks. What's important is we see the combination. Let's dig in together and see what God's Word says. Number one, Old Testament law points to a God who is equally holy and happy. Old Testament law points to a God who is equally holy and happy. Look with me at verse 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. What is he talking about when he talks about the law? Well, we know that the Bible is divided essentially into two parts. You've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. Another word for testament is covenant. So two-thirds of our Bible is Old Testament or Old Covenant. Now, even the Old Testament is divided up into different genres of literature. For those of you who love English, both of you, you're going to really, really love this next point, all right? 
When we talk about genres of literature, one genre is historical narrative. In other words, true stories. When the Bible talks about Adam and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, that is historical narrative. That is true stories about people who actually walk the face of the earth. Another genre of literature is poetry or uh, like pr the prayer book, the prayer book of the Psalms. Another genre is wisdom. You've got the book of Job, the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes. The last section of the Old Testament is a genre we call the prophets, and they mostly pointed to the coming of Jesus Christ. But there is a portion of the Old Testament at the very beginning of our Bibles called law. It's a law genre. And usually when people refer to the law, they're talking about Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. Technically, though, really the only law genre is Exodus 20 through Deuteronomy. Exodus 20 through Deuteronomy is that primary section we call the law. And so here in this passage, the Apostle Paul says there is a proper way to interpret and use the law, those first five books of the Bible, and there is by nature an improper way of interpreting or using the first five books of the Bible. This isn't in your notes, but I wanted you to really at the outset of the message be able to at least write down the references. Why did God give us the Old Testament law? Well, there's three reasons we see right up front. First of all, to show us what he is like. To show us what he is like. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. We see the character of God, the righteous nature of God when we read the law. A second reason Jesus, we have the law is to see what Jesus is like. Jesus drew our attention back to this in Luke 24, uh, 27 and 44. He says, when you read the law, the law pointed to me. So when you're reading about all the sacrifices in the temple and the, the shedding of blood and the lamb, that was actually a foretaste, a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. A third reason is to protect Israel with a code of ethics until Jesus arrived. Think about when the law was given. The law was given in the desert. It was given in the wilderness to the people of God at Mount Sinai. They wandered in the desert for 40 years. So many of the laws are given to protect Israel physically. God says, the creator of all things, God knows what's healthy to eat in the desert and what's unhealthy to eat in the desert. He says, hey, don't eat this, eat that. Don't drink this, drink that. God's very, very specific. And so you can see his care for the people of Israel, even as they move into the promised land. God is protecting them for 1,500 years, both ceremonially and physically and mentally and socially until Jesus comes. There's a fourth reason for the law we'll look at in a minute, but it's important that we understand that the law is good it has a good use. It was given to Israel by a good God. But here the Apostle Paul points to two things we learn about God from the law. And he points to the happiness of God and the holiness of God. Let's look at the holiness of God first. We see it in verses 9 and 10 that we'll read in a moment. But what does it mean to be holy? One definition is to be moral, morally pure, morally pure. Another definition is separated from sin. All those are good attributes of holiness. Another definition for holiness means to be totally devoted to something. 
The word holy with an H and the word holy with a W are very, very similar. And we see this idea of being totally devoted to God in Exodus chapter 3. Moses is speaking with God, and God is speaking with Moses out of the burning bush. And he said, Moses, take off your shoes, for the ground on which you stand is holy. It doesn't mean that no one had ever sinned on that ground. It didn't mean that somehow the dirt was extra spiritual. But it simply meant that God said, I'm reserving this dirt and this location to be totally devoted to my worship at this point in time. So when it says that God is holy, certainly it means that God is above sin. God is morally pure. But it also means that God is totally devoted to his own glory. God is totally focused on accomplishing his sovereign plan of salvation. God is holy. But verse 11 teaches us that God is also happy. Notice verse 11 with me. That says the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God. If you're taking notes or you write in your Bible, you want to write the word happy beside the word blessed. Over and over again in scripture, the word, this word for blessed, this Greek word, literally means happy. 13 times in the book of Matthew, Matthew uses it to refer to happiness, this, this certain aspect of an inner joy. He says in the Beatitudes, blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now there's something interesting though about verse 11, and that is he says not only does God want his people to be happy in Matthew, but in 1 Timothy 1 verse 11, he says that he himself God is happy. There's only two places in the entire New Testament that uses this word saying God is happy. It's right here, and it's in chapter 6, verse 15 of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 6, 15 says, God, the blessed or happy and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It seems to be that the false teachers in Ephesus, the false teachers we talked about last week as we're going verse by verse through this book, they seemed to teach that God wasn't very happy. And they tried to handcuff the people of God. They tried to handcuff Christians with all these extra rules and standards. They themselves had become curmudgeons and they wanted everybody else to be curmudgeons because they didn't believe God was happy. You see, that's the message the world wants us to believe, that God isn't happy. But the scriptures teach something totally different. God is happy to be God. He takes great pleasure in all that he does. And God is enthusiastic about serving his people. As you read the first few chapters of Genesis, God is not apart from his people. But where is he in the Garden of Eden? He's walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Here's some other references you can write down and study this week about the happiness of God. Jeremiah 32, 41, God says, I rejoice in doing good for my people. I rejoice in doing good for my people. Zephaniah 3, 17, he will take great delight in you and rejoice over you with singing. Zephaniah 3, 17. 
Matthew 25, 23, Jesus says, enter into the joy of your master. In Luke 15, 10, Jesus says, when one sinner repents, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God. I used to think that meant that there's joy in, in the hearts of the angels of God, but that's not what he says. He says there's something or there's someone that gets happy when somebody comes to Jesus and he's not talking about the angels. He's talking about God himself. God is infinitely happy. This week, this truth has absolutely rocked my world. I'm studying on Tuesday, several hours looking at this verse, and I can hardly stand it. If you would have asked me two, months, two weeks ago, Matt, do you believe that God is happy? I would have given it some thought and maybe thought maybe the old Oswald Chambers quote that says, well, God is, is more concerned for your happiness than your holiness. Since then, I'm completely all on board. God is infinitely happy. John Piper says this, happiness is part of holiness. If you tried to describe what it means to be a holy person, leaving out happiness in God, you can't do it. There's no such thing as holiness minus happiness in God. Happiness in God is the essence of holiness. C.S. Lewis writes, how little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. Even if 10% of the world's population had it, would not the whole world be converted and happy before the end of the year? Here's my question. Do you believe God is happy? Based upon the way you grew up, maybe the representation that you got of God from your parents or maybe a pastor or maybe some religious channel on TV, do you believe that God is happy? I've written it on the whiteboard up here in my study, and I don't know how long I'm going to keep it there, but I've got in three words, big, bold letters, God is happy. And it could be today that the one thing you could take away from this message is to go back and remember, God is infinitely happy. He is a happy God. How would that change the way you, you view life? How would that change the way you interact with your, with your kids or your spouse? How would that change the way you show up to work? How would that change the way you engage with the body of Christ here at church? God is happy. Holiness and happiness go together like biscuits and gravy. You can't have one without the other. Number two, Old Testament law proves that we are by nature unholy and unhappy. Old Testament law proves that we are by nature unholy and unhappy. Now, before we read verses 9 and 10, look with me at Romans 3.20. Just as a preface, Romans 3.20 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore will no one be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious, conscious of our sin. God loved us so much that he gave us the law to define what sin is. You see, if we didn't know we were sinners, we would never know we needed a Savior. 
Reminds me of the first time I got pulled over when I was 16. I won't tell you how many times I've been pulled over since, but first time I got pulled over when I was 16, I was driving my red Mustang, and it was Halloween night, and I had just come from all places, a church activity, and so I'm heading back home, and I stop in the Go-Mart in St. Albans, and I get gas, and I pull out a Go-Mart, and I go about two blocks, and this police, policeman turns on his lights, and one comes behind me, and another one a few seconds later comes down in front of me, and they've got me pinned in. I'm keeping my hands on the steering wheel. Those of you who are uh, policemen, you understand this. I'm scared to death. You, 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 never mind. So I'm sitting there, and, and you come to the door, or you come to my door, and you look in, and, and the guy says, um, he just shakes his head at me. He doesn't say anything. He just shakes his head at me. He's like sizing me up to see if I'm trouble or if I'm stupid. And I still don't know what I've done. And I said, you know, Mr. Officer, what, what have I done? And, and he says, turn your headlights on, son. Turn your headlights on. It's nighttime. Well, I'd pulled out of the gas station and forgot to flip on my headlights. And I can still remember that feeling. As soon as he told me what I'd done wrong, I was like, oh, now that he's exposed it, there it is. That's what the law does for us. It's like, this is how you have sinned against God. Galatians 3.24 says the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, he is guilty of all of it. You see, the law isn't like a 79% pass-fail. It's not even a 99.9% pass-fail. The law is either you keep all of it or you've broken all of it. Now let's go back to verse 9 in our text. Verses 9 and 10 are one of those reasons that God loves expository preaching. And God wants us to go verse by verse often through the Bible because we don't naturally just pick verses like 9 and 10 to talk about. But notice what he says in verse 9. We know that the law was made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers, for rebels, for the ungodly, for sinful, for the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers. Now in context, again, he's writing to a pastor of the church at Ephesus, young Timothy, and as we said last week, there was a group of false teachers that had crept into the church. And the false teachers throughout the six chapters of this book are arrogant. Over and over again, Paul reminds Timothy that they're proud, they're full of themselves, they're self-righteous. They don't think they have sinned. And so when Paul or Timothy would have read a list like verse 9, they would have been sitting there thinking, yeah, everybody else needs this. Man, Butch, Butch needs, needs this. Brett, man, Brett really, really, really needs this. Debbie, she needs this. But they never would have thought about themselves. And, and so here, Paul models what it looks like. We're going to see next week at the levy in chapter 1. Paul says, I'm a sinner in need of the mercy of God. So when Paul heard a list like this or wrote a list like this, Paul knew he was in the list. When Timothy read a list like this, he certainly would have known he was in the list. And you've got these arrogant false teachers who didn't think they were in the list, but they were. And he goes through this summary of the Ten Commandments. He rewords the Ten Commandments throughout the New Testament in at least three places. And here he says, let's call time out for a minute. As I read the list, please don't think about how much the person beside you needs this list. Please don't do that, all right? 
no holy elbows, no texts. Just think for a moment, where are you in the list? And if you're not sure where you are in the list, then you can ask your spouse, ask your close friends, ask your children, where am I in the list? Because they know, they know where you are in the list. So think of yourself. I'm going to be thinking to myself. Here we go. He says, lawbreakers, lawbreakers are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Who are lawbreakers? It's those who have passively ignored God's law. Those who have acted like God's law doesn't apply to them. Have you ever done that? Have you ever known that way down deep something was sin, but you're like, well, maybe that really doesn't apply to me because I've done that. You've probably done that. He says rebels, those are actively rebellious, actively insubordinate. Have you ever done something you knew was sin, but you didn't care it was sin? You were going to actively do it no matter what. Ungodly, those who are passively irreverent. It's as if, have you ever done something and you kind of pretended like God didn't see? You just convinced yourself that God doesn't see you when you do X. That's passively ungodly. And then the fourth one is sinful. That's actively ungodly, actively sinful. To sin with a high hand, God, I don't care. Then he says unholy. It's passively allowing sins to creep back into your life instead of fighting them like you used to. Have you ever done that? Maybe 10 years ago there was something you would never do and you know it's sin for you, but you've allowed that temptation to get the best of you and you've begun giving in again. Then he says irreligious, you mock that which is holy. He uses two illustrations here of, of killing your mother and father or of murdering in general. You're like, wow, this is, this is harsh. Well, Jesus said if you've ever hated your father and mother... It's as if you've committed murder as well. If you've hated anybody in your heart, Matthew 5, it's as if you've committed murder. Is there anybody in your life you have ever hated? Maybe you've justified it. Well, it's really not hate, right? I really don't hate that person. I just wish they would die, right? It's really not hate, though. Yeah, yeah we, most of us have. And God says it's like as if we've committed murder. And then he says in verse 10, the law is for the sexually immoral. For those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers. When we think about a sexually immoral person, it's any sexual conduct that falls outside the blessing of marriage. It includes adultery. Again, God, Timothy is, is hearing a summary of the Ten Commandments, the great seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. But all throughout the New, New Testament, he gives different examples of giving in to heterosexual temptation, of giving in to homosexual temptation. Jesus says if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. The law says you're guilty. Then he uses the word slave traders, literally stealers of people. It's an application of the eighth command, uh, this idea of not stealing. The word is human traffickers. Now we know that slave traders are the lowest of the low. How sinful could you possibly be to be a slave trader? But in our modern day context, human trafficking is as alive and well as it's ever been. 
It might look differently than it did 300 years ago, but it is alive and well. Here in the West, the porn industry is funded and flooded with human trafficking. I read this week in 2015, Don Hawkins, the director of the National Center for Exploitation, wrote this, drugs, alcohol, physical abuse, blackmail, threats, fake legal documents, deceitful enticing, promises of fame and money, and so much more are used to get whatever the producers in that industry desire. If you're a young man, one motivation to stay away is the glory of God. Another motivation is because of what it's doing to dehumanize men and women and boys and girls. He says, this is sin. Then he says, liars, the ninth command, thou shalt not lie. Or if you lie under oath, that's, that's perjury. And then at the end of the verse, he says, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Whatever else. It's like Paul's way of saying, etc., etc. In other words, if there's something you're doing that you know is sin and didn't make it in Paul's list, he says, it, it should be there. Just pretend like it's there. Anything that isn't healthy for your spiritual growth. Now, why would God put a list like this in the Bible? Our modern day friends would tell us, man, this is psychologically damaging. This is bad for your self-esteem. Why would God do that? I like to describe it this way. Pretend you're going on vacation and you're in a plane. Flying in a plane, you got your, you got your snack, you got your drinks, and the flight attendant comes by and, and he says, um, the captain would like you to put on this backpack. Right? I want you to put on this backpack. And he's got a whole like cart of backpacks and everybody's supposed to put on the backpack. And you, you laugh, right? Like, you want me to put on a backpack? Um, I have like 12, 16 inches for a seat, and you want me to put a backpack on? No, I'm not putting a backpack on. It's not comfortable. Well, then the flight attendant, he gets a little, little more stern. He says, you really need to put on the backpack. Like, you need to put it on right now. The backpack must go on. And you look at the flight attendant like, man, you're really messing with, you're really hurting me psychologically. You're really kind of forceful. You're hurting my, my, my self-esteem. What, what are you doing? Well, finally, the flight attendant gets frustrated, goes to the front, talks to the captain, comes back out of the cabin, and he gets on the speaker, and he announces over the loudspeaker, everybody put on your backpacks. They're not backpacks. They're parachutes. The plane's going down in a few minutes because we're out of gas, and there's nowhere to land. So in a minute, I'm going to open up the door, and we're going to jump, pull the orange strap. Now, still, that sounds freaky, right? Like, I really don't want to go parachuting. But when you see the reason for the parachute and the backpack, then it all makes sense. Instead of saying, man, that flight attendant, he's kind of forceful. How dare he tell me what I need to do or not do? Instead, you grab the backpack, you strap it on, and you hang on for dear life because you know it's the only way to be saved. And in this passage, Paul tells us that God loves you so much that he is telling you Jesus is the only way to be saved. We are in desperate need of salvation. And if I stood before you on Sunday morning and told you that you're okay and I'm okay and all we need is to try a little harder, I would be a liar. 
But God says because we're broken and every one of us are in that list. That's why Jesus came to die. The law has done its work when we can look in it like a mirror and we can see how dirty we are and how pure Christ is. What is the purpose of the law? It's to show us how unholy and unhappy we are without Jesus. Holiness and happiness go together like biscuits and gravy. You can't have one without the other. Quickly, number three, there's good news. Jesus not only came to save you, but he came to give you a holy and a happy heart. Jesus not only came to save you from hell and take you to heaven, but he came to give you a holy and a happy heart. Notice verse 11. He says, this message conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. The word gospel here means good news. The good news that Jesus came to live the sinless life that you and I could never live. To die the death that you and I could never die. To pay the price you and I could never pay. And to rise from the grave like you and I never could. By faith in the gospel, Paul says, that's how you become holy. You're going to want to write down this verse. Galatians 2.16. Galatians 2.16 says, Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law will no one be justified. Faith in the gospel also makes you happy. You want to get this verse. Romans 4, 7, and 8. Paul says, blessed. It's the same word used in 1 Timothy 1 and 1 Timothy 6. It means happy. Happy are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Happy is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. We had our outdoor baptisms last Sunday. We had 15 people baptized, men, women, boys, and girls. And the whole day just felt happy. It was just exciting. We know that people put their faith in Jesus, many of them, years, weeks, or days prior to the baptism. But it just felt happy. One testimony. I want to read you a portion of a testimony. This young man says this. I was raised in church and been surrounded by my family who were all Christians and were baptized. And I was continually being surrounded and pushed by God. I love that analogy. I had never really been interested in faith but put it in the back of my life. I was very bitter, and I was not pleasant to be around before I decided to put God first in my life. There was no happiness, no joy. But he said, I started coming back to Bible Center around the summer of 2017, and by God's grace through Jesus, that's when I finally decided to be serious in my faith and put God first in my life. I had just hit a wall in my life, and I was struggling with almost every aspect before I prayed the prayer and got saved. And after I put God first in my life, I started to, be, to realize God's blessings throughout my life through my awesome older and younger siblings and my mom and dad. I also believe I was more pleasant to be around after I got saved. Still, sometimes he admits, I have a problem with being kind. So do I. Maybe you do too. And I'm so glad that God has enough grace and patience to help deal with any issue that stands in the way of me being a better person. I'm so thankful for God's amazing grace 
and Pastor Josh Willits' sermons that he preaches in middle school ministry. The young man who wrote this is 12. And when I read this, I didn't help him with this. His parents didn't help him with this. He wrote it. And when I read this, I thought this is an example of what Paul is talking about. It doesn't mean your problems go away. It doesn't mean you don't sin. But it means that you're made holy. And it means you got something to be happy about. That's what I want for you. That's what God wants for you. That's what he wanted for the church at Ephesus. And that's what he wants for Charleston. Good news, Jesus came to give you a holy and a happy heart. They go together. There's one last point we've got to make, and then we'll pray. God calls us, in your outline, God calls us to follow New Testament gospel guidelines, not Old Testament law, because Jesus has already made us holy and happy in him. Jesus has already made us holy and happy in him. One of the big questions people ask is, how much of the Old Testament do I have to obey? How much of the Old Testament law do I have to submit to? Well, let's let God answer that in these two verses. Notice verse 9. He says, sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the... Excuse me. We know that the law is made not for righteous, but it goes on to say for the unrighteous. Romans 6.14 is another linchpin verse. He says, sin is no longer your master, for you are no longer to live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. When somebody asks me, Pastor Matt, how much of the Old Testament is my boss? How much of the law do I have to submit to? Well, if we're talking about Exodus 20 through Deuteronomy, none of it. None of it. You say, now wait a minute, are you saying I'm allowed to murder? The Ten Commandments says thou shalt not murder. Are you saying now I'm allowed to murder? No, that's not what I'm saying. We live under the new covenant, and the new covenant repeats that command. It's part of the moral fabric of who God is. Thou shalt not commit murder. So we do it because, one, the character of God, and two, we live under the new covenant, not the old covenant. But there's many commands in the old covenant that are not repeated in the New Testament. For instance, you can eat bacon, right? Leviticus 11 says, almost, thou shalt not eat bacon. You can eat bacon now. So don't be a Christian who picks and chooses from the Old Testament and say, well, the Old Testament law says you're not allowed to do this. Well, if that's the case, don't eat bacon. Now you can enjoy your steak, medium rare or rare if you want. If you're crazy enough to let it bleed all over your plate, you can let it bleed all over your plate. There used to be a law against that. Now there's not. You want to eat sushi? I don't know why you'd want to do that, but if you want to eat sushi, you can eat sushi now. You couldn't in the Old Testament, but you can now. The Old Testament forbade you to trim the edges of your beard. That would make me and most of us with beards out of line. If you ladies, you want to poke a hole in your ear and put some big heavy metal thing in it, that's fine. You know, that's fine if you're crazy enough to do that. You're allowed. That was supposed to be a joke. That wasn't very funny. (laughs) The point is, we are under the new covenant. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5. He says, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Happy are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. Happy are the merciful. They will be shown mercy. Happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Happy are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Happy are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Holiness and happiness go together like biscuits and gravy, or whatever else you want to say are combined. Without one, you can never have the other. We see this picture in communion. Jesus doesn't use an image of peanut butter and jelly or biscuits and gravy, but he uses bread and wine, or in our context, bread and juice. And this bread and juice point to the day that Jesus Christ made it possible for us to be made holy and happy in him. In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. I'm going to go ahead and ask our communion servants to join me at the front. And while they're coming, I want to ask you to do a couple things while the song is sung and we prepare for communion, I'm going to ask you to take this moment and meditate on the blessings of the new covenant. Maybe you just thank God. God, I want to thank you that I'm no longer under the old law, but I am now under the new covenant of grace. Thank God for his grace. Maybe you take a minute and ask God to help you be more thankful for that grace. Maybe you just take a minute and listen to the words of the song and remember what Jesus did for you. Or maybe you confess your sin. Is there still sin in the new covenant? Sure there is. You've sinned against something God has clearly in his new covenant told you not to do. This is a great time to confess that and experience the grace of God. I'm going to pray. And as the band sings and plays, use this time to remember the blessings you have in Jesus, the giver of the new covenant. Let's pray. Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ. As we take communion now, I pray that your happiness and your holiness would be seen as merging at the place called Calvary. That the cross is the linchpin it's the way by which both can be true. And so, Father, thank you for sending your Son to die, be buried, and rise again. Thank you for making us a new people, a holy people. I pray at this moment we would remember Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.
moment we'll, we'll take the bread together but let's remember the words of the Apostle Paul as he writes in 1 Corinthians 11 I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup. And here's our word. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's like a, a married couple renewing their vows years after the wedding. He says, this cup is a reminder of that new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Will you stand with me? Will you stand and let's sing this last verse with all of our hearts.
that you've been blessed and encouraged this morning. If you need to pray with someone and meet with someone and just talk to the Lord, we've got the prayer room right over here. People waiting for you to meet with you, encourage you. If you're new, please meet Jane at the fireplace. She's awesome. She'll get you plugged in here. Go now in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Have a great week.